I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Ask any parent what their worst nightmare is, and they'll all tell you the same thing. Losing a child. Maybe if you catch them on an unsentimental day, they'll tell you that their worst nightmare is being stuck in the boarding line on an airplane with a baby who had blown out their diaper. Or getting caught in traffic with a toddler having a meltdown and no snacks. Maybe they'll tell you something joking and lighthearted, but really, if you ask them for their truest, realest, worst nightmare, they'll say it's losing their child. They don't mean losing like misplacing, although that would be bad. They mean their child dying. I think that's why we say losing a child, though, because speaking it out loud that children die, it's just too much. It's too much. It's too much whether your baby is still growing inside of you or whether your baby is 35 years old, like my husband was when his mother walked into the room where he died and made a sound that I'd never heard before and I hope I never hear again. It's wrong for a parent to lose a child. It's against the natural order of things. Children bury their parents, not the other way around. Except, of course, there are plenty of times when the world is topsy-turvy, when things make no sense at all, when the absolute worst thing that can happen, happens. Jason knows this. His two-year-old daughter, Greta, was killed in 2015. She was sitting on a bench in New York City, and a brick from the building above her crumbled off the windowsill, plummeted eight stories, and hit Greta right on her head. 24 hours later, in the same hospital where she'd been delivered two years before, Greta was dead, her organs were donated, and Jason and his wife, Stacy, were living every parent's worst nightmare, capital W Worst, Capital N Nightmare. But the thing about someone's worst nightmare is that it's someone's life. Someone every day is living an experience that you just could not imagine or you wouldn't, even if you could. And so when the nightmare starts the first natural question to ask is, what do I do? Well, you have a funeral. That's a thing to do. I'm here in Greta's capacity. I have a role to perform in this service. And as long as you have some sort of purpose, even if it's staging your daughter's funeral or your husband's service or whatever it is, you can move through it. And you, it's this gift of your executive function, which you're like so grateful for. You're like, oh my God. And you re-enter the spaces that you used to occupy. You start by going home. For Jason, that's back to the New York apartment that he and Stacy and Greta lived in. Uh, it's the place we brought her into the front door from the hospital, you know, when she was born. And there was such a haunted sort of inverse feeling. You know, this time we brought her to the hospital and left without her. <laughs> to the same place, to the same doorway. And we couldn't do that again right away. We, we, we went to Stacy's brother's apartment. 
and uh, sat there for a few hours. And then, only then, did we kind of drive back to the building and, oh, is this this, I mean, there were so many things happening there in that space. Uh, it wasn't just that we were going home to the only home Greta ever knew. Um, we were also going back to the space where she'd had a play date two days earlier on the front, you know, out in front of the stoop, and her name was still written in chalk <laughs> in the front stoop of our building. I had to step over her name. You go to the grocery store for the first time. You go to the dentist. You go back to work. For Jason, that's as a music journalist. I went back to work after two weeks to edit album reviews because, I mean, I do love what I do, but, you know, in the sort of largest sense possible, I also think of it a little bit like moving, you know, like playing shuffleboard on a, on a drowning, on like a ship that's going down. Like it's so, it's so inconsequential to so much of life. And yet I craved that so much. Um, people couldn't understand that impulse um, at all. Like, oh my God, I can solve meaningless problems. The problems we choose to work on after this kind of trauma can feel inconsequential in comparison, but the act of solving them is not. That gives us something to focus on. We're still required to participate in our very mundane daily lives. It is excruciating to feel your mundane brain, which is the one you walk around with all the time. I mean, that's why tragedy, this is why trauma is trauma, because it shatters that brain. To have that mundane brain bump up against the ultimate. Because you always feel, oh my God, this is what I walk around thinking all day? When grief is possible, when tragedy is possible, when I could lose my son, my daughter, my husband, my wife, my mother, my father at any second? I'm thinking about my cold brew coffee, you know? <laughs> like, And yet here I am, and there's this person, and I have to tell them how sorry I am. And I have to sort of snap out of it instantly. And I think that everyone can relate to that feeling. There is no right thing you can say, so don't worry. Like, what you're there to do is to be there. Nothing you can say will be good enough to fix it, is the corollary, right? Like, you could say a dumb thing, but it's not worse than what they're feeling. There's just no way. You know, I had someone say, at least you could have more kids. And I... I it was a neighbor. I, I, I didn't think that person was trying to hurt us. I knew exactly what she meant, and I said thank you. You know, because she also brought us a quiche, and it wasn't like... In the grand scheme, those things don't matter. and so, But I have to tell myself that in the moment as well. It's hard. But like entering those spaces of a mundane daily life, grief also requires our participation. Even if you're not a joiner, even if you're more of a sideline person, a person who likes to sit back and observe, not jump right in, There's this place in Western Massachusetts called Kripalu. It's kind of famous for retreats about yoga or writing or grief or a combination of all of them, honestly. It's one of the original hippie granola centers in America. It goes all the way back to the 70s. You know, when that was still super fringe, uh, when you were a freak for doing yoga every day and eating a macrobiotic diet, and now that everyone does that, uh, or not everyone, but, you know, since celebrities have made it really, you know, normal... Uh, it's become a much different kind of place. Um, 
And there's all kinds of workshops there. There's workshops for people who, um, you know, for moms who have been home with their kids for a really long time and need to take a creative writing course. There's also for like cancer survivors or people who are dying of cancer or, or you know, it, it just really it spans a wild spectrum. And there's like crystals and healing and all this stuff that's very still kind of new age, even by today's standards. And Stacy and I were not the kind of people who just ran headfirst into that sort of energy. But they have to participate in their grief somehow. So they go to Kripalu. At the beginning of the retreat, Stacy and Jason walk into where the commencement event is taking place. They pick a couple seats together, the lights go down, and out comes the grief expert, David Kessler. In the beginning, at least, we were intensely uncomfortable, and we had this thing where we could leave if we wanted. That was our mantra to get us through. You know, if at any moment we were, like, too uncomfortable, we could, just, we could leave. And one of the first things he says is, no one can leave without telling me, because everyone in this room has had someone disappear, and so you can't just walk out. And it was like Stacy and I heard the click on the locks, and we're like, we're trapped. So the first thing he has us do is an icebreaking exercise where you, you clasp your hands in prayer, and someone clasps their hands over yours, and you make unbroken eye contact and recite a mantra. And Stacy and I are like, oh, hell no. <laughs> and so we choose each other, um, and David sees us. He knows that we're together. He's gathered that. And he's like, no, 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 no. We have to pick somebody else. And so he goes back and he physically pries us apart. And I'm trying to explain to him, no, 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 we're not going to, no, no, we're not going to. And then it's too late. And so they do the exercise. They hold hands with the stranger and make deep eye contact and affirm the stranger's grief. They do it. Cringing and skeptical, but doing it. And it's over. And we look at each other and we're like, that was the worst thing ever. And yet our blood was racing, our heart was pumping, and we felt like it was it, it, it had done the trick. We were all of a sudden, we're like, we're in for a penny, in for a pound, right? I am also a wallflower who would be agonized by this kind of display. I'm not an instant joiner, but I get that in these sort of charged environments, sometimes you do just open up with this new space you didn't know even existed inside of you. You can't be in that room. You can leave and be skeptical again, and you can go in skeptical, but you cannot remain in that room and hold on to that skepticism in the moment. It's impossible because the emotions are so huge. They just, they sweep you up. Jason and Stacy get swept up in that weekend, they put their skepticism aside and they participate and they explore and they process. And then one of the last activities we did that weekend was David Kessler had asked us to write letters to our, our dead person, to use a phrase that you use that I really like. We had to write a letter to our dead person. And everyone had a letter. And I was looking around, everyone's holding this letter. And that's powerful by itself, just looking around and seeing everyone holding this letter to their dead beloved. I mean, they're strangers, but that's such an intimate thing. And uh, he asked who wanted to read theirs aloud. And Stacy kind of nudged me because she, she sensed I, yeah, I kind of needed some, I needed something. I needed some recognition. I needed something. And I raised my hand, even though I was like, what the fuck am I doing? As my hand went up. Thanks a bunch. Thanks a bunch, Stacey. Yeah, thanks, Stacy. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, well, it, it it kind of rebounded back on her in the best possible way because I read this letter about Greta and how I and and, uh, and David said you sound angry and I said oh my god I'm so angry I'm angry all the time I feel sick with it I feel like I've contracted this horrible disease I just I hate anger I've always been so uncomfortable with anger you know it's the worst it, I had this whole like outpouring <laughs> and he's like all right come on up you Stacy come on up to the front of the room because we're gonna demonstrate to people how anger can be liberating. And I look at Stacy, and she's looking at me like, I'm going to murder you. Like, you know, I'm going to be a widow now, too, because I'm not going, you know, I can't believe you've gotten me into this. And they drag us up to the front of the room, and we have to sit down and pound pillows and scream in front of everyone at this room. And, uh, you know, I'm like holding the pillow. I feel like the kindergartner who has been brought up for the, you know, the, the, the show and tell or something who just wants to sit back down. And uh, he's like, no, no, come on, come on. And so then he, to demonstrate, he, uh, he throws the pillow down on the floor. This is David Kessler in front of everybody. And he slams his fists into it and he screams, it just isn't fair. And he's like, do it like that. <laughs> and so then Stace and I are sitting down and uh, we're frozen. And uh, he says to me, like, what makes you angry? And I said something. Um, I said that I hate happy families which was the first time I had admitted that sentiment out loud. I had felt that I never vocalized it because it felt so ugly to me. That was my new self meeting my old self and sort of hating what it saw, right? And didn't want to accept that I had this rage in me. And he said, well, you got to scream that. I was like, oh God. And so then he counts to three and the group dynamics work the way they work for a reason. And so I found myself screaming, I hate happy families. I was pounding the pillow and it was so visceral. And, uh, and it was something in me that I'd been holding on to that I hadn't even acknowledged was released. And so I think that moment was the first moment I realized, oh, wow, this is a powerful tool. And so that was the first time that I felt the power of what screaming could do. This anger is new for Jason. Before Greta died, he'd lived a life where things made sense, where the world was mostly good. In a world like that, you don't really need anger. Not this kind. I'd had this belief that anger was bad. Uh, anger was dangerous. It was destructive. So this bubbling, roiling thing that was erupting out of him, this is a new space for him. And soon after that time at Kropalu, Jason got a chance to trot out this new feeling, this new emotional turtleneck to wear out in public. The turtleneck is called rage. I had this encounter with someone that I probably, under any other circumstances in our lives, I feel like I probably would have butted heads with this kind of person anyway. Because it brings out something in you. as a sort of a person who, who talks over others. Stacy and Jason are at a grief group. They're sitting around in a circle with a bunch of other people who have lost someone they loved. Maybe a kid, maybe a parent or a sibling or a best friend. It's a whole lot of loss and pain in one room. And everyone is asked to contribute their story. When it's Stacy's turn to share, she starts talking about Greta. And at some point, the moderator cuts her off. And Jason feels he already didn't like the woman moderating this group. But then she talked over Stacy about Greta. And it brought this feral sort of, oh, it's on now, fuck you. Uh, you, have, you have given me an opportunity to be 
angry with you publicly and I have an excuse to be angry. You've done something that is objectively upsetting and now I get to unload on you. (laughs) So here I am with also only other people in the room with us at this point, our first time attendees to this grief group. We're in a room with other people who have come for the first time. We've been set aside so we can get like an orientation spiel. I mean, I thought about this moment a lot because there was something humbling about it. I lost my temper in this wildly inappropriate uh, venue and I became the person who was stealing the oxygen of the room just as much as this woman. But I got in a fight with her. I said, how dare you? How dare you talk over my wife? And she said, look, I can tell that you struggle with anger. I did too. I've been on this road a little longer than you. And that's also kind of an objectively obnoxious thing to say to somebody. And I found it insensitive. But again, lots of different roads to walk in response. And I chose the, are you pulling rank on me with your grief? How dare you? And just escalated. And it was so uncomfortable for everyone. I had contributed to this atmosphere that was toxic. And I had made this room unbearable for everyone. You're going to scream when you hear these deals from our sponsors. We'll be right back. And we're back. Jason has just learned that anger is something useful. It's one thing to scream in a safe place, in a fancy retreat center or a grief group where someone is holding space for you to lose your ever-loving shit, but we don't get to stay in those spaces. You have to go back out into the big, wide world, a world that is totally oblivious to your pain. And you have to go do normal people stuff, and Jason does that. He goes to work, he goes to the grocery store, he goes to yoga, and sometimes he just fucking screams. There was no decision-making. When you have to vomit, whether or not you have chosen your venue, you just got to find a spot to go to it. (laughs) And I was in the middle of downtown Manhattan... And one of those weird little streets that like curves around, like it leaves Broadway and comes back to Broadway. And it's like three houses, it's three, you know, whatever storefronts. It's such a weird area down there. And I looked up front, up front of me and there was one person riding in the corner. I looked behind me, there was nobody. And I just screamed, screamed so loudly. And it felt glorious. It was like the best feeling I've ever had. Um, and I looked around and it seemed like no one had caught me. And that also felt so weirdly powerful to me. I had done this thing, you know, I, I had I'd become extremely visible in my pain 
I had allowed it to escape. I had sort of said to, you know, I'm fucking dying here. I feel like I'm dying. Um, and not only did I get to vent that feeling out of my body, I didn't have to deal with anyone's scrutiny afterward. No one had to come up to me. I never had to, I didn't have to, to reassure anyone that I was fine because I was not. Um, and then I became addicted to that. It was an incredible feeling. The thing is, our grief is ours. Even when two people lose the same person, they lose different versions of them. Jason's relationship to Greta is not Stacy's relationship to Greta. The two of them, Stacy and Greta, they had a 40-week head start together. They shared blood, nutrients, kicks and flutters Jason could only feel when his wife grabbed his hand and placed it on her belly. As much as you love someone... As much as you grieve with them, wipe their tears, hold their body, you grieve alone. Jason does this, but so does Stacy. When I told her about screaming, and she told me, yeah, I do that sometimes too in the car. I mean, to be honest, I had seen Stacy scream in the car, (laughs) like pure road rage screaming. Jason describes Stacy to me as wanting to be a book that everybody has already read. And I thought to myself, I should plagiarize that. Because that is the best description of anyone that I've ever heard. You know, she wanted to be understood. Because everyone wants to feel understood. But she didn't want to be observed. Observing felt very like a harsh light to be under. So it made so much sense to me. Of course she screams in the car. Of course. And I could, I absolutely could see her. Um, you know, you see the person you love, you see what their body does. You can see them internalize things. You know their body as well as you know their, the contents of their heart. And you know what their shoulders do. You know, you know what their eyebrows do. Uh, you watch their muscles tense up. You can tell what they're carrying often. Maybe you can't name it, but you can tell they're carrying something. I mean, there's a reason why you can be sitting alone in a room and not saying something and someone will go, what's wrong with you? <laughs> you know, you pick up on those things. Jason is the verbal one. He's the writer. Professionally, but also just in general, he keeps a journal through this process, and that journal becomes the memoir, Once More We Saw Stars. It's the memoir of Jason and Stacy and Greta, of the many other people who loved Greta, who were swept into that tidal wave of grief after her death. There's also this void where Greta's story was in the world because the world knew of Greta, but only because she was hit by a brick. Um, the story of her death was so told, and it was told without us. And I felt a very powerful urge to retell the story in that space, on that scale. And this is her life. You know, this has to live side by side. If you're going to remember her, you know, that's what you have to do. You have to remember that You have to remember everything about her, everything that I can possibly tell you. There is a real danger when someone you love dies for people to transfigure them out of humanity completely. They cease being a person and they become an idea. They're not here to check with anymore. You can't compare your idea with the reality. All you have is the memory. And for people who are trying to console you, it is much easier to turn them into an abstraction, 
Because to remember their lives is to remember their physical existence. And to remember their physical existence is to remember that it was snuffed out. There was violence done to them in some way. There was violence in that passage. There is a passage. People don't want to focus on that. Because that's, that, that's the part that no one wants to think about for understandable reasons. Because you're in your body. <laughs> you want to stay there. And so to focus on that person's physical existence to me was so important because that was a reminder of Greta here in our lives. Greta was could be a huge pain in the ass. And it's so important to say that. I'm assuming that, you know, Aaron could drive you crazy. You know, you know, people have quirks. They have flaws. They're real. We are going to take a little break and then we'll be right back. We're back with the full humanity of Jason and Stacy on the last day of Greta's life. We were dropping Greta off with her her grandmother Susan um, for basically a a weekend alone. Not even a, a weekend, a night. We were dropping her off on a Saturday afternoon so that my wife and I could go out to dinner, eat a meal, and look at each other, and uh, sleep past five in the morning. That was the sum total of our desires. Um, we were working at opposite ends of New York in some ways while Greta was at a daycare in the middle between us in Brooklyn. Stacy worked at Coney Island Hospital and I worked in Manhattan. So you can picture that in the map if you know New York. Um, so one of us was always scrambling. And we were just on that very mundane treadmill. We were aware that we were passing through this really hard time of child rearing. Uh, just of being a parent. And so we were just worn down to like the barest nubs of ourselves, which again, totally normal. So we had this whole plan. It could not be a more boring plan. It was that I was going to go work my shift at the local food co-op and Stacy was going to drive Greta up to Susan's. She got stuck, and she was circling around Central Park around and around and around while Greta was crying in the backseat because Stacy was losing her mind because there was a marathon, a half marathon that had closed down traffic in every direction, and we didn't know about it. So I get a phone call. I'm standing on a stool directing line traffic. It's one of those co-ops where you don't really need to work there because there's, it's a tiny grocery store, and there's like 60,000 members, and they're like, here, you just hold this pair. You know, they give you something stupid to do just to <laughs> fill your shift. So I'm standing on a stool, like, waving shoppers through. It's the dumbest thing possible, and it's like the dumbest possible way to spend my Saturday morning. It's two and a half hours, two hours and 45 minutes, and my phone buzzes, and I pick up the phone, and I Stacy's screaming into my ear before I even pick the phone up to my ear. And Greta is screaming in the background, and I'm like, oh, my God, what is going on? They'd gotten trapped, and she's explaining to me. And so I say, just go home. Please just go home. Park the car. Get out of there. I will come meet you. We'll take Greta up the subway. Um, 
we'll do this later. I'm so sorry. I know this is frustrating. You're stuck, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I finished my shift and I, I shop, which apparently I was not supposed to do. I was not supposed to shop. I was supposed to come straight home. But I, I load up two canvas bags with whatever it is I bought, probably some produce or whatever. And I, I ride a bike home, I think, something insane, with like two bulging bags of groceries through Brooklyn. And I, I get home and I pull out my phone from my pocket and I've missed like eight calls from Stacy. She's like, where the hell are you? Greta's exhausted. I'm like, I'm coming. I, I went shopping for us. And she's like, you weren't supposed to do that. And I yell at her for yelling at me for going shopping. So I double back. And by this point, Greta is like nearly asleep in the stroller. We're still in Brooklyn. We have to get her on the subway. It's such a mess. We're fighting on the way down the platform. Usually Greta hates it when we fight, but mostly she's just like tuning us out. Um, and she's kind of smiling up at me. So we take her through, you know, our, our busted subway station deep in Brooklyn where they haven't renovated anything in it forever. Uh, I have to like lift up the stroller and carry her down these scary metal steps and plop her down. And the subway comes and it's full, full of marathoners, (laughs) just people wearing numbers and there's no seats and we, and we can barely fit the stroller in there. And I, for some reason, Bought a package of kale chips for, for Greta because she, right, I know. So I had never bought them before and never since. But the thought was, she hates vegetables. These are like potato chips. Maybe she'll eat these. And so I have this, like one of those big clear plastic boxes. It's like not, it's unwieldy. And I'm holding it. And Stacy's like, why did you buy those? Those look disgusting. Also, they're full of sodium. And I'm like, I'm trying to feed our daughter vegetables. And we're standing up on the subway arguing. And I rip the top off the kale chips and they all go flying everywhere. Kale chips and like sodium glutamate, whatever the hell is on them, just like spilling all over the stroller, which by the way used to be yellow and is now like nearly black from filth from Brooklyn. And like, so Stacey's like, oh my God, pick those up. And we're just having the worst time <laughs> also, ever. Also, those chips are like $14. <laughs> right, like, exactly. They, spe- I spent like box. a week's. Like- it's like a week's paycheck, right? You know, I'm just like throwing cash money around the subway station. And people are watching us, of course. People, you know, we're, in a, we're a spectacle. And so finally enough people get off the subway that a seat opens up. And Stacy takes Greta out of her stroller. And Greta sits on Stacy's lap. And we both, all three, I mean, Stacy, Greta never got upset. She just watched us and sort of was like, you know, okay, mommy and daddy are upset. Uh, they're frustrated. She used to always say, daddy, what's wrong with you? Whenever I got frustrated. And uh, I'd be like, I'm frustrated. She's like, it's okay. So she's sitting on, on, on Stacy's lap and she's making eyes at people on the subway and they're smiling at her and everything's okay again. So we get up to the Upper West Side and Stacy gets off first because she has an errand to run while I go drop off Greta with Susan and we're going to meet up later. So I drop off Greta with Susan I say goodbye to her. She doesn't even wave to me. She waved over her head, rather. She didn't hug me at all, really. She, like, waved over her head, uh, bye-bye, um, because she'd spent so much time with Susan. It was like they had a whole routine. The minute I would close the door, Greta would turn to Susan and say, I want mac and cheese, because we never made her mac and cheese, and Susan always did. And Greta never told us. It was like a secret she had with Grandma Sue's. So I leave, and I meet up with Stacy, and uh, we missed a movie we were going to see because of the shopping and the whatever. So we're just mad at each other. And we spend, like, two hours of our date night fighting, because then it's hot, the subway doesn't come again, again, because of the marathon. And we don't really stop fighting until we get to, like, Williamsburg, and we just pick a bar to sit down in, because we're just so tired. And we finally have this conversation where we're like, listen, this is just a tough time. I love you. You love me. 
Greta's amazing. She's getting so smart. I can't wait to see who she becomes. We just got, we just need some time. We just needed a little time. And we have a nice night. We look at pictures of Greta on our phone. We get updates from Susan and Greta. They're having the time of their lives. Uh, we see a friend. We go home. We sleep in. We get text messages from Susan that morning. Um, they're just kicking around the apartment. They're going to go for a little walk later. And she said, you know, take your time, guys. We're having a blast here. And so we say, oh, man, okay, let's enjoy our morning. We sit out and we drink our coffee. Um, and we get our laundry together. And uh, then we're going to go to that movie. We said, you know, let's go to the movie. Why not? And uh, then as we were walking to the elevator to leave our building, Stacy pulled out her phone and had missed a phone call from Susan. And she hadn't texted or left a voicemail. Um, and she never did that. I mean, she was so bad at returning text messages when she was with Greta because they were just off in their own world. Um, so it was off-putting. And then I pull out my phone and I saw that she tried me too. And that's when I called her back. And she said, oh, Jason, it's so horrible. After that phone call, Jason and Stacy rushed to the hospital. At the hospital, the same one where Greta was born, Jason and Stacy gather with their family in Greta's room. And they sit with her for hours and hours. And I was walking around the hall with my brother, I think, and I said something like, you know, I'm going to lose Stacy too, aren't I? You know, this is just, it's too devastating of a blow. Um, marriages don't survive this sort of thing. You know, the parents separate because they can't bear to look at each other because all they see is their dead child. Like, that's next. You know, I've seen this movie. Now I'm in it. Um, and I went back into the room. And I hadn't been gone for more than a couple of minutes. And Stacy was like, oh, there you are. You know, she's by her, her daughter's bedside. And Greta has staples in her head. And, you know, she's on life support. She goes, oh, there you are. <laughs> And she's like, uh, I was like, oh, I, I think I'm going to go down to the cafeteria. Uh, we've been up for hours and get some coffee again, somewhere to walk. Does anyone want anything? I'm like, yeah, sure. I'll take an iced tea or whatever, take orders. And as I'm going, she, she kind of smiles. She says, I love you. Or she says, love you. It wasn't even I love you. It was not as uh, profound a moment. It was casual. It was reflexive. And I was love you. And I left the room and I was like, oh, my God. We're going to get through this somehow. He's right. Many couples don't survive this. But Stacy and Jason do. They're still married. They have a new apartment in a different area of Brooklyn. Jason is now a New York Times bestselling author of that memoir, Once More We Saw Stars. And he's getting his MFA from Bennington College, which is most famous, as far as I know, for being the alma mater of our senior producer, Hans Butow. Their grief for Greta has changed, in Jason's words, from a tidal wave to a running faucet. Still here, but different. We all tell ourselves stories about the world around us. There are things we believe about the world we live in. There are things we just know. We move through this city and through our lives feeling so impervious. We, meaning my wife and I, many of the people we know. And 
to have your foundation shaken, crumbled really, that violently, is also to be faced with every single one of your unexamined assumptions at once. And you see that happening to the people in your lives as well. There's this dawning realization. Oh my God, we're not safe. We're not insulated. We thought we had made our lives such that we were insulated. We thought we were safe. We thought this was a bubble. And it makes you think about who you're excluding from that bubble as well in your mind. It makes you think about who's not safe in your mind. Greta was killed on one of the most affluent blocks in neighborhoods in Manhattan. And I firmly believe that there is an aspect of that that provoked people's horror as well. Underneath the assumption that this shouldn't happen was the added assumption, well, this also shouldn't happen here. But it does happen here. And there. It happens everywhere. As Jason points out in his book, and like we all know, it just happens. Sometimes it happens when a person is old and ready, and sometimes it happens without warning, without goodbye. There's no easy way out. Greta's death was headline news in New York City, and part of that fascination was that people are either looking for reassurance that it could never happen to them, or they're looking for a way to challenge their idea of their own bubble. Either way is pretty irresistible for people. While I was getting ready for this interview, I looked up one of the original articles that was written about Greta's death. And underneath that article, um, it said stories you might like. And one of those stories was two-year-old eaten by alligators. And you know what? I, I didn't like that headline, but I did click it so that I could know how it happened. So I could know that my two-year-old, who will likely never be close to an alligator, will know how to not be eaten by an alligator. Like, I was looking for a confirmation of my bubble. I hated myself for clicking that, by the way. But even knowing intimately that it happens and that not all children live, Stacy and Jason know that they want to be parents again. We knew immediately that we were going to have another kid. Um, and that we also knew that we would not have that child until we felt like we could know that we were having that child because we wanted that child. Um, you know, we wanted that child's life. We didn't want Greta's life back. Um, we just wanted to be parents. Fifteen months after Greta's death, their son Harrison is born. His birth, his life, is chronicled in the same book as his big sister's. What what my job is, is to, is to give him... I have to try to be as wide of a window onto the world as I can. You know, I mean, you, you only have... You have the borders of your own perception. You have the borders of your own biases and taste. And honestly, we don't really have much control over that either. Um, there's a tiny, tiny framework of my biases and limitations and understandings that I actually can control. And that's what I worked to control and, and sort of, I wanted to give Harrison the same world I gave Greta and he could make of it what he would. 
And to, to the extent that I, I feel like he believes the world is a big place and it's comforting and he likes the people in it and he's not afraid of much of anything. He has no fear, really. I feel like I've accomplished that. So whatever else I fuck up is entirely going to be new, original fuck up. You know, it's entirely fresh, untrauma related fuck up or, you know, or I don't even know it yet. And there's some beauty in that. Like I, I, I feel like his life has given me a new understanding of what a fresh start can really feel like. And in every possible way, you know, Harrison has, you know, given us a very clear message that he is not his sister. Um, you know, they would get along really well and she would be so delighted by him, but they would fight all the time. Oh my God. Um, they had some, they're both so stubborn in opposite directions and they would have so many things that they clash over. A death like Greta's rips your universe into two. There's the before and there's the after. When you've gone through the first, the first time back to that apartment, the first time you fold up her clothes, the first time you meet your son, it's easy to focus on those lasts. To place an outsized value on the very last day you spent with your child. How you argued with your wife and struggled to find a seat on the subway. How your daughter barely even waved to you because she was so excited to get to grandma's and have that secret mac and cheese. There's so much regret there um, in the sense that you just naturally look back on an event and say, that was the last conversation I had with my daughter. That was the last time she saw her parents talking. But at the same time, it was holy because those were the, that was the texture of our lived existence, you know? That was it. The full texture of a life. The full texture of Greta's life was chalk on her front sidewalk and going to the park and also two tired parents. It was a filthy stroller pushed by the people who loved her the most. A grandmother who secretly fed her mac and cheese because that's the best food ever and also grandmas are just delivery systems for children to get what they want. The full texture of Jason and Stacy and Harrison's life is Greta. Is that brick and that bench, those sleepless nights, those early mornings, that city, the love and the anger. It's all of the dazzling, devastating things that happen in a lifetime, a week, a day or a moment. The two big questions everyone has when a child dies. Why did this happen? What does it mean? Well, it happened. It just happened. A brick just fell. It just fell and it hit the baby who was sitting below it. And what does it mean? What does the sudden and violent death of a toddler mean? You know, her death was meaningless in a lot of ways. It was so meaningless. Um, like you said, they, they, there's no scenario in which you, you say to yourself, well, I better not sit on this bench uh, in front of this perfectly safe looking building because a brick might fall from a windowsill, because that's what an insane person says. That's no way to live in the world. And yet it happened. It became true. Um, and 
I just feel like uh, the brick was just, it, it didn't symbolize anything. It didn't represent anything. You know, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the fragility of the world now. Um, and I, I, if it had any message, perhaps it was that. But I also refuse to ascribe messaging or give power to this insanely random thing that occurred. The brick just fell. It just happened. And Greta was just sitting there. Um, and there's nothing else for me to ascribe to it at all. Greta will always be two. Soon, Harrison will be older than his sister ever was. Someday, he'll be able to read his father's book. Someday, his big sister will be more than a photo in his cubby at nursery school. He'll know what her life meant to the people he sees as basically just large servants. He'll start to know his parents as people. He'll start to know himself as a person. He'll start to see the connections between his existence and Greta's. He doesn't exist because Greta does not. He exists because we love him. He exists because we wanted him to exist. Um, there is no what if. I mean, I don't know how to answer that for him yet because I don't know what will happen in his mind. But what I, only thing I want Harrison to know is that I badly wanted him to be in the world. You know? And also, he doesn't need to live for us. I mean, that sounds weird, but I, I talked to people who, who had been born after their sibling died, and I could tell which of them had a peaceful relationship to the idea of their sibling they never met and who felt haunted. And someone wrote me and said, I asked my parents how they survived it, and they told me you. And I thought, man, Harrison has to know that we survived it because we survived it. And then we had him because... You know, we loved him so much before he was here. You know? Um, he's here because we wanted life, not because we experienced death. I don't know. You know, it's gonna, it's, And I have no idea how to juggle that metaphysical ball. I have no idea. I'm Nora McNerney, and this is Terrible. Thanks for asking. Our senior producer is Hans Buto. Marcel Malikibu is our associate producer. Hannah Meacock-Ross is our project manager. Jordan Turgeon does everything else. Ariana Giles is our intern. Anna Weggel does production work for us. We appreciate her. Jason's memoir is called Once More We Saw Stars. It's very good. 
You can find me online at norabourealis.com or on Instagram at norabourealis. Our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson, and Terrible Thanks for Asking is a production of American Public Media.